When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. During the contest of opinion through which we have passed, the animation of discussions and of exertions has sometimes worn an aspect which might impose on strangers unused to think freely and to speak and to write what they think. But this being now decided by the voice of the nation, announced according to the rules of the Constitution, all will, of course, arrange themselves under the will of the law and unite in common efforts for the common good. All, too, will bear in mind this sacred principle that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable, that the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect, and to violate would be oppression. Let us then, fellow citizens, unite with one heart and one mind. Let us restore to social intercourse that harmony and affection without which liberty and even life itself are but dreary things. Every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. Thomas Jefferson Who are the people? They are not alone, the unfortunate and the weak. They are the weak and the strong, the poor and the rich, and the many who are neither. The wage earner and the capitalist, the farmer and the professional man, the merchant and the manufacturer, the storekeeper and the clerk, the railroad manager and the employee, they all make up the people and they all contribute to the running of the government. William Howard Taft What does concern me, in common with thinking partisans of both parties, is not just winning this election, but how it is won. How well we can take advantage of this great quadrennial opportunity to debate issues sensibly and soberly. I hope and pray that we, win or lose, can campaign not as a crusade to exterminate the opposing party, but as a great opportunity to educate and elevate a people whose destiny is leadership. Adelaide Stevenson The message is, here in America, the people are in charge. And that's really why we're here tonight. This electoral victory belongs to you and the principles that you cling to. Principles struck by the brilliance and bravery of patriots more than 200 years ago. They set forth the course of liberty and hope that makes our country special in the world. To the extent that what has happened today reaffirms those principles, we are part of that prairie fire that we still think defines America. A fire of hope that will keep alive the promise of opportunity as we head into the next century. We've come together again, we're united again, and now let's start building together and keep the prairie fire alive. And let's never stop shaping that society which lets each person's dreams unfold into a life of unending hope. America's best days lie ahead. And you know, you'll forgive me, I'm going to do it just one more time. You ain't seen nothing yet. Ronald Reagan Hello, everyone. And welcome to the special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. 
I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As we enter another election year here in the United States, I've been pondering how this podcast could help the audience to understand the historical context of everything that will be occurring in this coming year. I do want to stress that I feel that my role and the role of this podcast is to talk about U.S. presidential history. There are other podcasts and various means by which you can learn about the candidates running in this cycle. And I do encourage all of you out there to take the opportunity to familiarize yourself with the candidates that are running and that may potentially be elected to represent a constituency. This includes the candidates who are not of your political affiliation or perspective. Also, I encourage you to explore their viewpoints as reported by multiple sources. As a student of history, I consult with multiple sources on a regular basis because I long accepted the reality that, whether intentionally or not, everyone has a bias or a way of looking at things that is not necessarily reflective of the whole truth. The more sources we consult, the more confidence we can have when making decisions. To that end, I also have to preemptively say that, should someone you vote for not end up living up to your expectations, please do not feel that you've made the wrong choice. All you can do is make a choice based on all the information that you have at any given time, and voting should, in my humble opinion, be about choosing the person you think will do the job best. Besides, as many of those that we discuss on this podcast would remind you, the next election cycle is an opportunity for a performance review for those you supported in the past. For those who are eligible to vote, I think it also important to caution you that when you're pulling the lever or pushing the box on the touchscreen, or marking the ballot, however you may be voting. In that action, you are not just voting for a name or a party. You're voting for an individual, a person who is going to make mistakes. Just as we are not perfect, so too is it important, in my humble opinion, to remember that there will never be an ideologically perfect candidate. Unless you're willing to run for office yourself, then no one is going to match up 100% to your viewpoint. Even should you choose to run, you can and will be faced with situations where you have to make choices in unfamiliar situations or topics, and you may later find that your decision did not have the best outcome, or was not one that you would have made with hindsight. One of the most difficult balancing acts in life is to push ourselves to do the very best that we can, while at the same time realizing and accepting that we will never be perfect, and being at peace with the reality that we will all make mistakes. While I'm sure many of us, including myself, would not choose imperfection, we do all choose how we spend our days. For my part, I've tried to not only focus my efforts on my personal growth, but also have attempted to support and encourage those around me to be the very best people that they can be. I know how instrumental many people have been in helping me to develop myself into the person that I am. And I consider it an obligation and a privilege to, in my own small way, help others in return. In that vein, this will be the first of a series of special episodes over the next year devoted to helping all who listen to understand a bit more of the ins and outs of elections in the United States. I invite your feedback and questions. But remember, let's leave the political fights of the present day to other arenas so that this can be a forum to which all are invited. No one neither elected official nor voting citizen, can ever be perfect. But we can strive to be good and just and kind to one another. Working towards that ideal has always been enough, and it will be again, so long as we get on to it. To that end, I thought the best place to begin this series was with the beginning of the presidential election, namely 
the presidential primaries. Before we dive in, though, I do have some acknowledgments to share. For the first episode of the special series, I put out the call to numerous folks to get us started. Reading the Jefferson quote was Ben from the Thugs and Miracles podcast. On his podcast, Ben goes through the history of the kings and queens of France, one monarch at a time. He brings great insight to bear on each episode. So if you want to get an idea of what we know and don't know about the French monarchs from the very beginning, you'll want to give Thugs and Miracles a listen. The Taft and Stevenson quotes were read by Kelly and Emily of the Whining About Her Story podcast, another podcast which recently entered my regular podcast queue. Emily and Kelly each research one woman from the annals of history per episode and share what they discovered about their respective subjects' life with one another over a glass of wine. And we, the audience, get to listen to the knowledge they share about remarkable women through the ages, as well as the humorous banner that comes natural to dear friends. I've been catching up on their episodes and have enjoyed every moment thus far, so be sure to check out Wanting About Her Story as well. For the Reagan quote, I turn to a friend in real life, Dan. While he doesn't have a podcast yet, Dan is an excellent guy and a dear friend who has offered his vocal assistance in the past, and I knew he would bring to the reading a similar verve to that which led to Reagan's being dubbed the Great Communicator. I cannot thank all four of these amazing folks enough, and I will have links to the podcast mentioned on both the website and my social media. One final acknowledgement, thanks to my husband Alex for providing audio editing assistance for this episode while we were traveling for the recent holidays in December. He's been my biggest supporter since day one of starting this podcast, and I can't thank him enough for his help in making this episode happen. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In the modern era, we think of a large component of the U.S. presidential election process being the primaries. But what if I were to tell you that the primary component of the presidential election is actually a rather new innovation? In the times of the early republic that we're discussing in the main narrative of the podcast, They barely had what we would consider political parties, and they certainly didn't have presidential primaries. Between the decentralized nature of parties in the early republic and the limitations of communications and transportation technologies of the time, many of the features of the modern presidential campaign would have been impossible in the late 18th, early 19th century. It was only in the election of 1832 that the three major parties of the time, the anti-Masons, the Democrats, and the National Republicans held their first national nominating conventions. There had been local and state nominating conventions dating back to the 18th century, but the first organized system of choosing presidential candidates had been the Congressional Caucus system, whereby the members of Congress from each party chose the party's nominee for president. The objections to the caucus system began in earnest with the election of 1824 in that state leaders were left out of the process. And with President Monroe retiring after two terms and the Federalist Party having faded into oblivion, there was no one agreed-upon successor. Historian James Chase argues, however, that too much credence has been given to the idea that the Congressional Caucus was ever even a serious method of choosing a candidate. As Chase asserts, quote, No one seriously contends that Jefferson, Madison, or Monroe reached the White House as a result of a caucus nomination. 
something which cannot be said of many of the National Convention nominees. Indeed, as he points out, there was relatively little competition against any of those three candidates, and all three had followed a somewhat similar path to the presidency. But by the time of Monroe's first nomination in 1816, rumblings were already starting to amass as yet another Virginian, third in a row and the fourth of five presidents to that point, was the favored candidate. Monroe only won the nomination in the 1816 caucus by a vote of 65 to 54 for William H. Crawford of Georgia. Though Monroe had a good cushion, the support for Crawford was nothing to be sneezed at. Monroe's seeking a second term meant that there was little to no contest at all in 1820, so 1824 became the first opportunity to stop yet another appointed successor. As some of you know, the election of 1824 is unique in that it was only the second election, and to date the last, to be thrown into the U.S. House of Representatives as none of the candidates received a majority of the electoral vote. 1824 was the death knell of the Congressional Caucus, but it still took some time before another system was put in place. I have plans to talk more about the history of national conventions at a later date, so we'll skip over some of the details of that for now. But just know that the people chosen as voting members of the conventions in the early stages were state and national party leaders who were chosen at the state level in a system that, though it dispersed the decision-making power a bit further, was still controlled by the party leaders. Members of the state conventions were chosen by district conventions, which were controlled by state and local leaders. Though there would be occasional disputes between factions of the party, it was ultimately a contest between party leaders rather than the input of the general populace which dictated who would be the party's nominee for the next 80-plus years. It wouldn't be until the 1912 election that we got the first state primaries, and one has to wonder how long that innovation would have taken to come around if not for Theodore Roosevelt's ambition. Roosevelt had left the presidency in 1909 with his hand-picked successor, William Howard Taft, ascending to the role. Roosevelt, however, would find fault with Taft's presidency and began to consider a run for re-election. At the time, there was no limit to how many terms a president could serve, and Roosevelt was still a relatively young man. Thus, he began to support an idea that had been thrown around in progressive circles, a primary election which would choose the delegates to the party's national convention based on who the delegates supported for the presidential nomination. T.R. felt that this would be a demonstration of the public's support of him and might help secure him the Republican presidential nomination over Taft. Without going into too much detail on that election, though 13 states had primary laws on the books and Roosevelt won a majority of those contests, Taft would go on to win the Republican nomination, and the Democratic nominee Woodrow Wilson would win the presidency due to Roosevelt's third-party run splitting the Republican vote. The direct primary innovation would ultimately outlive Roosevelt's ambitions for another term, but it did look to be an idea on shaky ground for a long time after. In the early days of presidential primaries, unless there was an incumbent running for re-election, the candidate who won the most primaries was not necessarily the candidate who would go on to win the nomination. 1916 Republican nominee Charles Evans Hughes only won two primaries and just under 81,000 are 4.2% of the total primary ballots cast. In 1924, out of the numerous candidates who received votes in the Democratic presidential primaries, the convention ended up choosing none of them, as ballot after ballot over the course of nine days failed to settle the matter, 
So Dark Horse candidate John W. Davis was drafted and got the nomination on the 103rd ballot. Things were different the next election cycle, though, as eventual Democratic nominee Al Smith, as well as his Republican challenger Herbert Hoover, won the most primary votes and contests before receiving their respective parties' nominations. The 1932 election would prove that, even for a sitting president at the time, primary wins still weren't guaranteed to choose the eventual nominee, as former Senator Joseph I. France won seven primaries and over 1.1 million votes, 47.5% of those cast, to President Hoover's four contests and 861,000 votes, only 36% of votes cast in Republican primaries that year. Despite this reflection of popular discontent, Hoover would win the Republican nomination at the convention and then go on to lose his re-election bid. The link between primaries and the choice of a party's nominee would continue to be tenuous, if not non-existent, through the 1930s and 1940s, and the primary system was dwindling in impact. By 1935, out of the 26 states that had passed laws establishing primaries, eight had already repealed them. What was the point, one had to wonder, if the voters' will was just ignored in the end? The tide would begin to turn in the 1950s when General Dwight D. Eisenhower, in his first run for political office, went on to tie the conservative Senator Robert Taft of Ohio in at least one measure, with both candidates winning five Republican primary contests, though Taft managed to inch out Eisenhower in the percentage of the vote. This showing of popular support for Eisenhower was used by his supporters in the convention to inch past Taft to get within striking distance, then pick off enough votes from other candidates to push past the finish line for the nomination. Winning primaries in the 1960 election also proved key to making the case for Senator John F. Kennedy's electability. Democratic nominee Al Smith's loss in the 1928 election was attributed in part to anti-Catholic prejudice. So there were concerns in Democratic circles that a Kennedy nomination would doom the party to defeat for the same reason. However, Kennedy went on to win 10 primaries and nearly 1.85 million votes, 31.4% of those cast in the Democratic primaries that year. As with Eisenhower, Kennedy's supporters used his performance in the primaries to argue for Kennedy's electability to party insiders and secure him the nomination on the first ballot even despite the last-minute entries of Senate Majority Leader Lyndon B. Johnson and two-time Democratic nominee Adlai Stevenson into the mix. Increasingly, primaries were seen as a way for candidates to prove their electability, but even as late as 1968, eventual Democratic nominee, the sitting Vice President Hubert Humphrey, did not win a single state in the primaries and only garnered just over 166,000 votes. 2.21% of those cast in the primaries. For many reasons beyond the scope of this episode, Humphrey went on to defeat in the general election. In the years leading up to the 1972 election, the Democratic Party shook things up. To combat the justified charges that the Democratic Party apparatus was not reflecting the will of the Democratic voters, commissions were established and hearings held around the country in the spring and summer of 1969. This resulted in a complete reorganization of the party structure and, more importantly for our focus in this episode, reforms to the means by which delegates were chosen for the National Convention. As noted by Jules Whitcover, starting with the 1972 convention, quote, 
All delegates had to be selected through their state's primary election, state convention, or committee procedures, and within the calendar year of the national convention and election. Automatic appointment as delegates by local and state party kingpins was prohibited, and the new procedures required even party officeholders and elected officials to win their seats in open competition. In response to the measures coming down from the national party, a good number of state parties had to seek reforms through their respective state legislatures in order to meet the guidelines. And by and large, the state parties saw establishing a primary as the easiest way to meet the new guidelines. 1972 would be the first time that all 50 states and the District of Columbia held Democratic primaries or caucuses to choose nearly two-thirds of the National Convention delegates. The rest had to be elected by the convention itself in an open contest. To demonstrate just how monumental of a shift this was, in 1968, only 14 states had held Democratic primaries to help select a party nominee. Republicans followed suit in the 1976 presidential election, and since then, primaries have been a key part in the presidential election process in the United States. In the 2020 election cycle, the first caucus and primary will occur in February, and the next episode in this series will discuss the differences between the two, as well as the variations in both of those systems. However, I did want to address one other item of note in the history of primaries in the U.S., As we're seeing in this election season, when an incumbent president is in the field and running virtually unopposed, some state parties will cancel their primary or caucus in order to conserve financial resources as well as display a sign of party unity. To date, the Republican parties of Alaska, Arizona, Hawaii, Kansas, Nevada, South Carolina, and Virginia have decided to cancel their typical primary or caucus. While this is a practice accepted by both major political parties, I would argue that, to stay true to the intent behind the primary system, they should be held regardless. As we've discussed, though the major initial push for primaries was due to political ambition, primaries were intended to give a voice to the people of the party in selecting the party's nominee for the only elected office in the U.S. that represents the entire nation. In the development of the process, the selection of a presidential candidate was taken out of the proverbial smoke-filled room and put on full display. Are there still needed reforms? Of course. No system is ever perfect. As American citizens consider the idea of reform, though, we must always keep in mind the intent, as that will help to guide the vision of what could be and hopefully avoid any unintentional negative consequences that reform for reform's sake could cause. I hope this has proved informative, and that you'll tune in for the next special episode of the series, where, as stated, I'll look at the difference between primaries and caucuses in anticipation of those upcoming first contests. As this series is a new endeavor, and I'm hoping to continue on with the standard narrative without interruption, I can't necessarily commit to a regular release schedule for these episodes as of now, but I'll try to keep everyone updated on social media. If you're not following me there already, follow me on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, or on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. Feel free to send me any questions or comments you may have on there, or if you'd like to reach out to me via email, I'm available at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Sources used for this episode, as well as much more information, can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry.com. 
That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Special thanks again to Ben, Kelly, Emily, Dan, and Alex for all their help with this episode. And be sure to check out Whining About Her Story and Thugs and Miracles, both of which are available anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Finally, I thank you so much for listening. I hope this new endeavor proves beneficial and enlightening, as I greatly appreciate you taking the time to listen. Until next time, take care, dear friends. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.